following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10, 30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So uh, my wife Amy and I are new parents, uh, something that uh, is awesome, amazing. And uh, here's a cute picture of my son, so you can all say, Aw. I knew it. You see? I knew it. Uh, so that's Hudson. Hudson is just this incredible little boy uh, that we love. And uh, being a dad has, has been incredible. Um, I, I remember the very first time when I took care of Hudson on my own for an extended period of time. Uh, my wife was just going back to work for that day, and so I was going to be at home with Hudson alone. I was super excited. I was pumped. Um, you know, by that point, I'm like, you know what? I, I've mastered the art of the swaddle. I've uh, figured out how to properly change a diaper. Uh, I know how to soothe him to sleep. So I, I'm feeling pretty confident I can handle this. We had a, a bro date planned at Chick-fil-A. We were going to hang out, just the boys. And uh, so, so excited to hang out with Hudson. And then the time came during that first time I was with him for me to feed him. He woke up from his nap and he's not patient. He wants his food. And uh, so Hudson's, you know, crying. He wants, he wants to eat his milk. And uh, so I get the milk from the freezer. I start to defrost it and put it, in the, put it in the warmer. And so it gets warm. And then I take it, I put it in a bottle, and then I sprinkle some on my wrist because apparently that's what you do. And so you sprinkle some on your wrist to see the temperature. I don't know if it's the right temperature. And then I put it in the bottle and I go, all right, Hudson, I get him. I try and feed him and I, I make things worse. Uh, he, he, he's losing it. He's flailing. I'm afraid I'm going to drop him. And so I'm like, okay, maybe it's not warm enough. So I go back to the warmer, I put it in, and uh, you know, time cannot be going slower. And uh, I take the thing out of the out of the warmer, and I sprinkle it on my wrist again to see if it's warmer. And this time, I get a third degree burn on my wrist. And I'm like, okay, probably not a good idea to feed him yet. So I'm just trying to soothe him, calm him down. And uh, eventually, I try different bottles, I try different tips, I try different positions, and it just wouldn't work that day. It was bad. It was rough. And uh, he made it, and I made it. Uh, We survived, and now I'm a little better than I was then. But I realized that day that there was a weakness in my dad's skills. Uh, There was a blind spot that I didn't realize I had. Now, we have this idea of blind spots in all sorts of different areas of our lives, whether it's our families, our work life. It's an area where we don't even realize what we don't know. Uh, See, I, I had that blind spot. I had that weakness two weeks after he was born. I just didn't know I had that weakness. Well, there's sometimes when our blind spots kind of get exposed, and it's good for them to be exposed. It was good for me to experience that with Hudson. And when it comes to our faith, when it comes to our relationship with God, there's a similar dynamic at work. This idea of blind spots often spills over into our relationship with God, where there are things where we're particularly weak in. There are things that don't come as natural to us that we aren't as gifted in, and so our tendency can sometimes be to either ignore it to leave it off to the side, assume somebody else will take care of it, when in reality it's something that God desires and calls us to do. Today we're going to look at an area of uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ that if, if my heart is any indication of what your heart is like, it may just be a blind spot for you. It may be one of those areas that we almost don't even know what we don't know. We don't know how to properly and best meet these particular needs. And so when you read the Bible... Cover to cover, Old Testament to New Testament, there are a series of threads, there are some themes that are consistent throughout, and one such thread, 
One thing that becomes crystal clear when you read the Bible is that God has a heart for the poor. That God has compassion, that God is drawn to the needy. There's there's this level in which God is like a magnet towards those who are in distress. And as his people, God has called us to love and serve the poor just as he loves the poor. And and if we're honest, I think this is one of those areas where, where it might be a blind spot. Where it's almost like we don't even know how much we don't know. And so we're going to read in Deuteronomy 15 how Moses gives clear instructions for how Christians are to love and serve the poor. And before we get into Deuteronomy 15, let me give you a little bit of the background of what's happening at this point. In Deuteronomy 15, uh, this is after uh, God's people had been enslaved in Egypt and then were miraculously freed. So Israel was in Egypt. They were enslaved, forced laborers. And they were crying out to God, hoping for help. And God raised up this guy named Moses. And Moses was the leader. He was the deliverer who stood before Pharaoh. And he said, Pharaoh, let the people go. Let God's people go. And every time he would say that to Pharaoh, there's this phrase that's repeated to describe Pharaoh's heart. Over and over again, it says, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so Pharaoh did not respond by saying, okay, you're free. He responded by saying, no, you're staying, you're my slaves, you're going to keep working, and don't even think about trying it again. Over and over and over again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And then through a series of miracles, through plagues, God eventually frees his people. They wind up escaping Egypt, and they're on their way to a land that God had promised them. A land that for centuries and generations, this promised land, they were about to enter into it. And Deuteronomy takes place 38 years after their freedom from Egypt, they'd been wandering in the wilderness waiting to enter into the promised land and Moses stands to deliver a series of speeches. And these speeches were inspired by God to instruct the people of God for how they were to live when they entered into the promised land. And one of the topics that's addressed multiple times in Deuteronomy that's present in these speeches is how they're to care for and love the poor among them. And we're going to read that. We're going to see it in Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'll give you the outline for where we're going. If you take notes, you can write these three things down. When it comes to loving and serving the poor, Deuteronomy 15 is going to show us three things. Number one, he's going to show us the command to do it. Second, is going to show us the heart behind it. And third, it's going to show us the power for it. The command to do it, the heart behind it, and the power for it. Look what it says, Deuteronomy chapter 15, starting in verse 4. Moses speaking says, There will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. So Moses was saying to them in this section, he's saying to them that God is going to so richly bless you in this promised land that the the resources you're going to have, the harvest you're going to experience are going to be so plentiful. God is going to bless you in such an extravagant way that there will be no poor among you. Now, if you've ever studied human history, it's very hard to find a season whenever there was a society or a civilization where there was no poor among them. It's very difficult to find. And God is saying through Moses that you will be so richly blessed that there will be no poor among you if there's a condition. In verse five, he says, 
if you carefully obey everything that I've commanded you. And so his declaration, the audacious declaration that there will be no poor among you is in itself a mandate, a command to be generous, to be caring for the the needy, to be actively pursuing ways that you can help those who are poor. That God was going to provide for them more than enough for all of their needs. And so there's this clear command. So put simply, the command to do it means that giving and caring for and loving and serving the poor is not optional. It's not a, a menu item in, you know, on a, on a Christian menu that says, you know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can pick a list of whatever these are. You can choose the ones you like and choose the ones you don't like or choose the ones you're good at and forget the ones you're bad at. No, serving, loving, caring for the poor near to the heart of God is commanded very simply to all of us. And this is one of the areas of the walk with God that church history is a treasure chest. So many amazing examples of how Christians have historically loved and served the poor. I want to share with you one. Uh, in the Roman Empire, uh, that was the, uh, the people who were in charge when the, the Jesus movement first began. Christianity started under the rule of a Roman emperor. And uh, so the Roman Empire was notoriously uh, harsh and intolerant of Christians. Especially in the second and third century, there were some very, very evil emperors who killed Christians, who burned them alive, who baptized them by drowning them, uh, who uh, did all sorts of weird things to persecute and harm Christians. And when you look at history, it was in this period of time when Christians were being mistreated, imprisoned, and abused. It was during this time that Christianity experienced some of the most explosive growth in the history of the church. And historians scratch their heads and think, how on earth did this movement just completely grow exponentially in the midst of killings and imprisonments? Who, who is going to convert to something that almost puts a target on your head? Now, we know that there's a divine purpose in all of that and that God was working in the midst of that, but there's also some interesting sociological reasons why Christianity thrived in the Roman Empire. And one of those reasons is noted by a guy named Rodney Stark who talks about how cities in the Roman Empire were just nasty. I mean, cities in the Roman Empire were full of, full of crime, disease. They were overpopulated, overcrowded. They were neglected in many ways. A lot of the people who lived in the cities lived in awful conditions. And yet Christianity, rather than leaving and fleeing the cities, all the more jumped in. They saw those disease-ridden and poverty-stricken areas not as something to flee from, but something to step into. And look at what sociologist Rodney Stark has to say about this. He says, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homeless and impoverished, uh, and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. That Christians so aggressively loved and served the poor that it made a difference in these cities. They were marked. In fact, there's a, a letter written by one of those Roman emperors, a guy by the name of Julian. In the fourth century, Julian wrote a letter to, uh, to a pagan priest, and he was writing to him because he felt threatened by how the Christians were loving and serving the poor Roman citizens. Listen to what Julian, the Roman emperor, had to say. He says, the impious Galileans, that is the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. 
So this Roman emperor, observing how Christians, how the church was loving and caring for the poor, starts to feel threatened and says, man, they're not only caring for their poor, they're caring for our poor. They're caring for people who don't believe what they believe and aren't a part of their faith community. And so, in fact, this threatened experience led Julian to start a series of pagan, camp, uh, uh, pagan charities to try and compete with how the Christians were serving and loving the poor. What if, what if in our community, in our city, there was such a profound heart and movement among God's people, churches across South Florida, that literally the government was taking notice? that people were observing, man, you know what? I I might not agree with Christians on that or I've been told that Christians are hateful or hurtful or bigots and people have told me all this, but man, when I see how they love and serve the poor, I can't help but just applaud. I can't help but be in awe. And what if such a profound movement happened here among us? Now, the reality is um, that this idea of loving and serving the poor, no matter how uh, how we slice it is, is sounds great, we're for, there might not be a person in this room who's like, oh no, we shouldn't love and serve the poor. But for many of us, man, like what does it look like? What does that look like for me, with my family, with my job? What does it look like to love and serve the poor? It's, it's not an easy thing. And so I, I just want to commend to you one simple principle. Um, of course, whenever you can, meet a need. Of course, meet needs whenever possible. But more important, just as important, I should say, is communicate value. That whenever you come across a person in need, whether it's on the side of the road in a 10-second exchange, or whether it's someone you have the chance to have a five-minute conversation with, if there's a way that's possible that you can not just meet the need, but communicate value, communicate that they matter. There's a book called When Helping Hurts um, that we actually have information about in our resource center. It describes this beautifully. And The authors of this book describe how people who are in poverty describe their poverty in different terms than people who are not in poverty. For those who are not in poverty, they tend to describe poverty as a lack of physical needs. For people in poverty, they tend to describe their poverty as hopelessness, as a sense of worthlessness, as a sense that they're locked in, they're trapped, they can't get out of this. And so imagine being driven by and constantly people turning their heads and not looking constantly doing that. And man, I've been guilty of that so many times. And what that communicates, even if I don't have anything possible to give in that 10 second moment, what that communicates is you're inferior. And so any opportunity we can communicate value, one of the things that you might be able to do with your family or members with your community group is perhaps one of the organizations we worked with last week that you went there, maybe you can go again as a family or as your community group sometime again this holiday season and volunteer there. Perhaps you can plan, a, here's an idea, plan a, a grocery trip during the holidays when you know the Salvation Army, the, the bell ringers will be out. Plan and, and go in advance and maybe write a card to the person who's there. Write something to them. Write an encouraging word to them. Give them scripture. And along with a small gift or any gift, however God leads, go up to them and simply communicate they matter. Ask them who they are. Ask them where they're from. Have a conversation with them like they're a a human being just like we are. And so simply communicating value can be a powerful, powerful tool. So simply put, we're commanded to do this. We're commanded to love and serve the poor. But if we're honest, this idea of loving, ser- loving and serving the poor, sheer willpower and grit, sheer just forced discipline is not really gonna make a lasting difference. 
If we think, well, I just got to obey. I have to obey this. I've got to serve the poor. And we're doing it out of a guilt-ridden conscience. That may make a difference for a while, but that wears off. And what's beautiful about Deuteronomy 15 is he doesn't just address the command. He speaks to our heart. Listen to what he says. Here's the heart behind it. Verses 7 through 10. He says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, be careful, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. The Bible is such a powerful book. If reading the Bible is not a pattern of your life, I can't encourage you enough. My life really began to change. My walk with God changed when I started to read the Bible on my own. And what's so incredible about the Bible is he goes beneath the surface and he speaks to the heart. In Hebrew thought, the heart is the center of a person. The heart is the decision-making. It's the place where your desires reside. The heart is where your actions flow out of. Your heart is what your words come from. Your heart is the center of the person. And when God is addressing the command to meet the needs of the poor, he's not just concerned with the fact that we do it, that we obey with cold obedience. He wants our hearts to be in the right place. And if you saw carefully, he gives us a wrong way not to give to the poor and a wrong way to give to the poor. Look in verse nine. In verse nine, he says about how, uh, he says, take care, be careful, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. He's saying, be careful that your thoughts don't go down this train of thinking where you look down in an unworthy way on someone who's in need. That you look at them as though they are inferior, as though you're the savior, and, and look at them and perhaps even think thoughts like, well, they're there for a reason. They're locked there because they want to be there, or they're there because they don't work hard enough. And listen, they, they, a number of those things may be true, but since when has the operating principle for a Christian been based on what people deserve? We've been forgiven by grace. And so when he's describing here, don't withhold with a grudging heart, don't allow your thoughts, be careful not to think yourself superior to them. He's giving us, okay, there's a wrong way not to give and there's also a wrong way to give. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says this. He says, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give. That we shouldn't feel like coerced into helping someone. That a guilt-motivated help of someone, although it may on the surface meet a need, that that is harmful to our own hearts. And so God is addressing not just the physical command to do this, but he's also getting at the heart behind it. And that's so much more important. Now, um, I want to read to you a couple of statistics uh, that just kind of set the scene of what the situation is like here in South Florida when it comes to poverty. Uh, and so listen to these numbers. Uh, according to census statistics, in Broward County, where there's about 1.7 million people, 14.5% of those 1.7 million live in poverty. 
In Miami-Dade County, there's about 2.7 million people. And of those 2.7 million, 20.4% live in poverty. And so if you add those numbers up, of the 4.4 million or so people living in Miami-Dade and Broward County in our neighborhoods, that over 800,000 people are living in poverty. Over 800,000. You can fill up Dolphin Stadium 13 times. And with that immense need, that can sound completely overwhelming. Like, how do we even begin to make a difference in there? And I know, like, within those 800,000, there's, there's a number of different stories. There's a number of different reasons. Some are there for, for reasons that are out of their control. Some are there for reasons in their control. But that number, the fact that there's over 800,000 people in need, is indicative that the church has much to do. One of the things that we've been talking about throughout this series is the idea that we want to be the kind of church that if all of a sudden West Pines Community Church was removed from our community, that people would take notice. That people who don't attend West Pines, maybe people who have never even heard of West Pines, that their lives would be different because they were affected somehow in a positive way. We want to be a church that makes a lasting impact in our community. So what does it look like here in South Florida to begin to make a dent in that, to start bridging that gap and addressing the heart of the matter. Well, uh, as you know, um, the heart is something that's not so easy to change. Uh, in fact, as a student pastor, um, working with middle and high school students, one of the things that I quite often speak to teenagers about are, are relationships and their hearts and where they're at. And it's just a a season of life when those are just very valuable, they're very important. And uh, I've almost developed the skill, especially among some of our high school guys, there's this certain dejected, there's like this certain downtrodden look in a teenage guy's face that I have kind of developed just the habit of being able to walk up to them and say, so tell me what's your name? And they will proceed to tell me, what's going on. And it's just, it's just the, the nature of that season of life. And whenever we're talking about relationships, one of the things that quite often comes up is, well, tell me about the person's character that you're interested in, or tell me about this person's character. Tell me about the, the kind of person that they are. And the reason that those questions are so important is because that person may, may want the behavior of the person they like to change, and behavior can change. You can use some skill to change behavior. You can modify behavior just like you can train your pet. But the reality is to change a person's heart is far more difficult. And modifying behavior in one area of your life, fixing something, tends to have the heart be exposed in another area of life. You might deal with something over here, but then something else props up. There's a heart issue. And the heart is so much harder to change. It's so much harder to, to impact than behavior. So how can we, when it comes to loving and serving the poor, not just begrudgingly, not just guilt-ridden, do it. How can we develop a heart and compassion? What does it look like for our hearts to be softened and our hands to be open to the poor and needy? That's where this passage gives us the power for it. I want to show you in verse 11. Look at what this says uh, in verse 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Now, if, you, if you've been listening closely, 
that sounds like an apparent contradiction with what we read in verse 4. He just said, they'll never, they'll never cease to be poor in your land. But in verse 4, we read earlier, but there will be no poor among you. So which is it? There will be no poor among you or there will never cease to be poor in the land. And what Deuteronomy quite often does is Moses communicates, God communicates through Moses that there is an ideal standard and expectation that God has for his people for how they're to live. And yet God knows good and well the reality of how they'll fall short. That there's this gap between God's expectation and standard for us and the reality of how we live. And so the question is, how is that gap bridged? How do we gain ground on the gap between the calling we've been given to care and love for the poor among us and the 800,000 gap in our midst? What does it look like to make progress, to gain ground on that? And for that, we need the power for it. Guilt-ridden, grudging, forced discipline, service to the poor won't cut it. There needs to be a heart developed, and here's the power for it. If you look closely with me, verse 7, check this out. We read it before, but I want to emphasize a part. Listen to what Moses says. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. You shall not harden your heart. That's a a phrase that's eerily familiar for the people of Israel. It's a phrase that they encountered many times before. It's a phrase that years before, when they were the ones enslaved in Egypt, when they were the ones who were in their poverty, when they were the ones in a desperate situation, Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, let the people go, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so it's almost as if Moses is saying, Lest we be like Pharaoh was to us, let's remind ourselves that we too were in our poverty, that we too were in our bondage, and our God graciously forgave us and redeemed us and set us free. And so how much more should we go to needy and hurting and desperate people and display that same kind of love? In fact, what we see throughout Deuteronomy is this constant reminder of their slavery in Egypt and their redemption from Egypt. Uh, I want to read this to you. This is just a few verses down in verse 15. Listen to what he says. You shall remember, remember, recall to mind that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. In other words, the command is always linked to their redemption. Their freedom from slavery in Egypt was the paradigm and the roadmap for how they were to operate in the promised land. That they were once poor, they were once in bondage, and God freed them. And so now he releases them and sends them off as people who go and make a difference in the lives of others who are needy and poor and hurting. Their redemption was to serve as the roadmap for their lives. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Deuteronomy 15, we just read in Deuteronomy 20 and Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 24, over and over and over again, Moses reminds them, remember, you were a slave in Egypt and God freed you. Remember, remember, remember. Now, I have a hunch that there's no one in this room who was ever a forced laborer in Egypt um, under an evil pharaoh um, and his heart was hardened toward you, but then God miraculously saved you through a series of plagues and walked through the Red Sea. And uh, I, I bet none of us have experienced that. So we don't have that redemption story. But we do have a different story. 
we do have something that's in fact far more precious. See, every single human being is on an equal playing field before a holy God. Every one of us. Every single human being, regardless of where we were born, regardless of what our family made growing up, regardless of where every human being is a sinner who has rebelled against their creator. Every one of us are trapped and in bondage to our own selfishness. That our selfishness, we want to be our own gods. We want to say, this is what I want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it, with who I want to do it, for how long I want to do it. We set the course for our lives. We have this idea that we're God. And in doing so, we reject the God who made us and made us for himself. And so trapped in the prison of our own pride, in shackles to our sin, mastered by our selfishness, we try to shake ourselves free. We try to break free. We try and be good enough. We try and do more religious things. We try and attend church enough. And no matter how much good we try and do, no matter how hard we try, we can never set ourselves free. We're hopeless and poor and spiritually dead. And the righteous judge of the universe looks down on sinful and rebellious humanity and he looks at us with compassion and mercy. And the question becomes, how can, how can the righteous judge of the universe look at guilty people who have committed crimes against him? How can God, who is righteous, who is a perfect judge, look at us and forgive us? I mean, any human judge who would look at a person who has committed a crime and say, okay, well, it's not a big deal, you can go free, that judge would be removed from his seat. How can then the just judge of the universe look at sinful and guilty people and forgive them? The way the righteous judge of the universe does that is he offers up his righteous son. Jesus Christ comes into the world. God become a man. And at Christmas, we celebrate that our God became one of us to redeem us. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He was sinless in every way. He perfectly fulfilled the righteous requirements of God's law. And yet, at the end of his life, he was treated with a criminal's death. And it's as if on the cross, Jesus looks at his father, looks at the judge of the universe and says, Father, the sentence that they deserve, I see them in their prison. I see them in their shackles, in their bondage to sin. Father, give me their sentence. I'll pay it. I'll take the judgment. I'll take the punishment. And on the cross, what happens is Jesus Christ stood in my place. My sin, my selfishness, my deceit, me seeking to be my own God, deserves from God the just wrath like this massive tsunami that should be pointed right at me. But God so loved the world that he gave his son. And Jesus steps in front of that wave and it's as if every single drop of water is absorbed by Jesus. And he shields us so that not a drop of judgment, not an ounce of punishment, no sentence is left for us. It's been served. It's been paid in full. Jesus suffering eternal judgment in that moment for you and for me. So we were in bondage. We were in our poverty and he freed us. And so how much more then, when we see someone in need, 
should our response not be to think ourselves superior or them inferior, but instead to find how much we have in common with them, to find how similar we are. There's a phrase we use around here quite often. It's that we've been rescued by Jesus and we'll never recover. We've been rescued by Jesus and we've never recovered from it. In other words, that the fact that Jesus has redeemed us, that God has freed us from our bondage to sin and our own selfishness, and we now have a restored relationship with God and we're going to heaven, that reality now, it transforms every area of our life. We'll never recover from what Jesus has done for us. It's going to permeate every area. And so now that redemption, that rescue, becomes the roadmap for the rest of our lives becomes the roadmap for how we think, for how we see others, for how we see ourselves. So when it comes to the poor, the more we understand how we've been rescued, how we've been redeemed, just like Moses says constantly, don't you remember you were slaves in Egypt and God freed you. Therefore, this is what I command you. Then God would say to us today, don't you remember how the son of God died for you when you were in your slavery, when you were in your bondage, when you were at your weakest and he loved you anyway. Now you go and do likewise. The more we understand this message of redemption, the more we understand and embrace our rescue, the more we'll have a heart, the more that we'll have a compassion for the poor. The way that you have the power to not just begrudgingly forced discipline, try and just obey cold commands, but the way you develop a heart and compassion for people in need is by recognizing your mutual brokenness by recognizing that you were needy, that we all still need God's grace, and that God wants to use you in that person's life to communicate that they do matter. They do have value in the sight of God. There's a 20th century uh, Christian minister by the name of D.T. Niles, and uh, he was a man who... uh, Born in Sri Lanka, he did ministry in India and a lot of impoverished places around the world. And he went around telling people about Jesus. And D.T. Niles, this evangelist, someone, a preacher, he described his ministry in these words. Listen to how D.T. Niles described what he did. He described it as one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Ultimately, Christianity isn't about people who are more moral than others, people who are better than others, about people who realized that they were needy and God found them in their need. There were beggars just wanting to show other beggars where we found bread. And when that message begins to take root, when that reality begins to sink deep, now all of a sudden, it's not begrudging, it's not teeth gritting, all of a sudden our hearts are drawn with compassion just as the heart of God is drawn with compassion for people in need. Our Heavenly Father has a heart for the poor. He has a heart for the needy. And it's our calling as his followers, as his people, to share in that heart. Remember your redemption. Remember your freedom. And let that compel you to love and serve and care for, just as God has loved and served and cared for us. So I want to invite you now, if, if you've never made the first step of first trusting in Jesus as your Savior, what that means is that you realize that you are in need, that you are in spiritual bondage, that you don't have enough spiritual pedigree, your resume doesn't stand the test to God, and that you need a Savior. 
Today you can turn to Jesus, put your trust in him, and say, Jesus, I believe that you on the cross paid my sentence, that you absorbed the just wrath that should have been pointed at me, that you loved me anyway. And by turning to him, you can have a restored relationship with God. You can be forgiven. And now this redemption story, this rescue now defines every area of your new life with God. I want to invite you to do that right now. Would you bow your heads? I want to speak directly. If, if that's you, if you sense this is God gripping your heart and this is, you know right now that God is speaking directly to you, you need him. And if today for the first time you want to put your trust in the righteous son who died in your place, who went to that cross and paid your sentence, if you want to do that, then right now you can say something like this to God in your heart. You can say, Heavenly Father, I come to you recognizing my need. I come to you recognizing I'm guilty. I admit that I'm, I'm enchained to my own sin and selfishness. But I believe you sent Jesus to die for me, to pay my sentence, to absorb the judgment, and that by trusting in him, I am freed. I believe that you rose him from the dead and that following him with my life is what you want me to do. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who made that decision today to put their trust in you as Savior, that you give them the courage to share with that with someone and that they would rejoice in this great news that a loving God, a just God, would look down on us with such grace and compassion. Father, I pray for all of us that this, this blind spot for so many of us that we would see it and that our hearts would be softened and our hands opened and that we'd be open to however it is that you want to work in our midst. May we have a heart just like yours for the poor and the needy. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.